This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Greetings, hello, and welcome to this virtual event wherever you are on this troubled planet. I'm Susie Day, I'm a writer in New York City, and I am extremely happy because today Haymarket Books is releasing The Brother You Choose. Paul Coates and Eddie Conway talk about life, politics, and the revolution. And we're here in virtuosity here, virtually, with Paul Coates and Eddie Conway. Paul wanted, in the spirit of Black Classic Press, to um, begin. Go ahead, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. And more so than in spirit of, of Black Classic Press, it's really, really a tradition among uh, Black people that we acknowledge those who are not with us and ask them to join us when we come together. And in this sense, we'll do a modified version of a libation. It's important. We're Eddie and I are going to talk about, certainly with Susie, talk about uh, his incarceration are coming along together over the last 44 years, 40, I mean, it's actually close to 50 years now. But we've, we've had so many people that we've crossed during that time. So many of them are still in jail who are not with us. So many of our people have gone on to become ancestors. So if we can just take a moment acknowledge those people who are in your life in any way that you choose. Some people do it from a religious perspective. Some people do it from a, uh, a deeply and a profound spiritual connection with those who've left. Whatever you feel, just take a moment of silence, please, and then we'll get started. Susie, thank you. Thank you, Paul. I want to talk just a little bit about the book before we launch into questions and a conversation with Eddie and Paul. Um, first, I want to thank Haymarket Books, not just for publishing The Brother You Choose, but I'm honored to be part of the zeitgeist of recently released books like Black Power Afterlives, edited by the formidable team of Diane Fugino and Matef Harmakis, and How We Go Home, Voices from Indigenous North America. Haymarket encourages not just vision, but dialogue, and dialogue is what I hope this launch will generate. So The Brother You Choose is about the lives and the lifelong friendship of Marshall Edward Conway, who was born in Baltimore in 1946, and William Paul Coates, who was born in Philadelphia just a few months later. They met in their early 20s in the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. 
And like thousands of young black people at the time, they came to the Panthers demanding not just racial equality and an end to police violence, but a chance for black people to reshape the world. They wanted the revolution. And actually there was a lot of the revolution going on back then. And now history, that mighty judge of just who's important in the world, tells us that the Panthers didn't work out. History has different theories for this. It's too militant, bad political decisions. Yeah, well, I think above and beyond just about everything, you have to pay attention to the role of the U.S. government in the destruction of the Panthers. Similar to government efforts today, infiltration campaigns like the FBI's counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO, worked with local police to neutralize and destroy anti-war and liberation groups. And there was no group that was more targeted than the Black Panther Party for self-defense. So Eddie was framed for the murder of a Baltimore police officer. He was sentenced to life plus 30 years. And so for more than four decades, while Eddie was locked up, Paul stopped by his friend. Paul worked on legal campaigns, organized rallies. He started Black Classic Press to get books into the prison. Paul also visited Eddie for years, often bringing his kids in with them. One of them, ta was to become a writer. And that uh, will be a little discussed as a backstory in the book. Finally, on March 4th, 2014, Eddie was released and Paul was there on the streets of Baltimore, along with a few of us, to welcome him. Today, the two men, Paul at Black Classic Press and Eddie with the Real News Network, are rock solid. They're each married with families and full separate lives, but they're still each other's chosen brother. I have to say that the book, except for my background, uh, narration of uh, settings and legalities of Eddie's case, is well over 90% Paul's and Eddie's own words. I got these words from our interviews and conversations over six years, beginning shortly after Eddie was released. So, yes, there is history in this book, but we weren't trying to write history. Because history, as we've known it, mostly in underfunded public schools and overfunded mass media, <clears throat> needs to shut up. History needs to listen to people like Paul Coates and Eddie Conway. And that's why I'm really excited that they're here tonight or today, whatever time it may be, wherever you are, with us to answer more of my and then your questions in real time. Actually, Paul and Eddie are too through with me. I think they want to cut in a little early to audience participation. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, money you donated uh, to this event will go to Haymarket to help get copies of this book and Black Power Afterlives into people in prison. So that being my official introduction, I want to ask you both sort of a general context question. Then, Paul, I'd like to ask you a particular question, Eddie, you a particular question, and then depending on how you're feeling, we can open it up to the audience, and I certainly have many more questions after that to ask. Does that sound okay? Yes. Susie, I think that's fine. 
quite think. I, think I, I have to tell you, though, I was and, watching Eddie uh-huh. when you got to the part and you said history should listen to Paul and Eddie. We both smiled. OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to tell you that. All right. I'm hoping for that effect. So, <laughs> anyway, let, let's get back to the Panthers. And, and I want to ask you you were both in your early 20s. You were young. You both come out of the Army, not ever having met each other in the Army with totally different lives. You met in the Black Panther Party in Baltimore. Where were you in your lives when you came to the Panthers? What were you looking for? And what did you want the Panthers to do in the world? Paul, you want to take that first? It's, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Susie, I, I, I wasn't really looking for the Panthers. I was looking for something that would change the world. Mm-hmm. And changed the world that I was a part of because I knew growing up in the 60s that something was wrong. I just did not know how to address it. And I didn't know how to participate in the mass movement, of, uh, particularly of black people mm-hmm. that were working to change it. So I began looking for organizations to join and it just so happened as my consciousness got me, because there's that period, and I'm sure many people can understand, there's a period in which you think a thing, and then it drives you to the point of consciousness that you have to do a thing. And in my case, I read books, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I finally made a commitment that I'm going to jump and I have to involve myself with an organization. I I was aware of the Panthers, but I actually began to look for groups that were more prominent in the civil rights movement, SNCC, Mm -hmm. um, organizations like um, um, CORE, and other organizations that were headquartered in D.C., and most of them had closed. All of them had basically closed by the time my consciousness really kicked in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was fortunate enough to come in. I say fortunate enough, and I mean that, come into contact with the Panthers in Baltimore. And there was enough There was enough energy there and enough political energy there that it opened my eyes even further and caused me to understand that what I had been looking for was a relationship, a comradeship with people, and a willingness to dig in, as many of those Panthers had, a willingness to dig in and try to take on the task of changing the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I was um, when I came to the Panthers. Mm-hmm. Do you remember meeting Eddie there? Eddie, Eddie was this. Um, he, he was he was a Panther by the time I came. See, because when you first come to the Panthers, you're community workers, or, or you, you you really are just community people. And if you and if you're around for a while, and if you participate, you became a community worker. So I was a community worker. I used to sell newspapers. Used to do things at the breakfast program. This guy was a full blown Panther. He had been around for a while, you know. He had senioritis and stuff like that, and he was real cool. Everybody loved Eddie Conway, but I didn't see what was so big about him. You know, I really didn't. Um, but no, no, no. We 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 met when I first came to the Panther Party. Eddie had been there 
um, before me. But we really, we, we had a few conversations, but we really did not, I, I don't know he might think of it different, but I don't think we had a real bond or real feeling uh, for each other. That would later develop. Um, for me, um, I think I left the Army after I noticed a series of riots going on in America. And I, uh, uh, one particular case of uh, Newark, New Jersey, where uh, a tank was involved in pointing a 50 caliber machine gun uh, at a bunch of black women. It, it kind of, at that time I was ready to go to Vietnam and I decided that, well, I needed to come home and see if I could do uh, something to help solve whatever problems there were. I didn't think the problems were unsolvable. Uh, I just didn't know uh, what efforts we needed to make to solve those problems. So initially, I actually came home and I uh, joined the NAACP. I worked with uh, CORE. Uh, we worked around integrating the fire department. And because I, I made a conscious decision that, well, what we needed to do was to get more white collar jobs for the black community, to uh, get more management skills for the black community, to become more professional. And uh, so I engaged and embarked on that path. And as I was integrating fire departments and uh, operating rooms, uh, what I found was that the problem was bigger than our skill set or even our paychecks. Uh, there was like a massive kind of oppression going on uh, that couldn't be solved with the passing of the Civil Rights Bill or uh, other laws. And, uh, and I started looking uh, seriously at other organizations to see who represented. And I, I, I must have followed in the same path uh, or footsteps, at least, that Paul did. I looked at the organizations in uh, D.C., uh, uh, different uh, liberation movements and so on. And finally, I came to the conclusion that the Black Panther Party was the way in which to organize the community to help it improve the conditions. And primarily, I came to that conclusion from looking at the newspapers, watching what was going on in other locations, New York, California, so on. Uh, and so I decided to join the uh, Panthers in Baltimore. Um, and it, initially it was disappointing. There was a lot of people, a lot of young energy, uh, a lot of commitment, uh, uh, but there seemed to be not a lot of directions. And I thought at that time, because I had been a sergeant in the army and I had some discipline and some skills, that I could help change that. Uh, and so uh, I engaged in, uh, today I think it was the right thing to do, even though I have a lot of experiences and a lot of pain in the process of surviving that experience, but it was the thing that was needed and it was the thing that I as a person needed to do. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in the book you you write about there was a real party going on in the Panthers, and um, you you later discovered that it was largely because it was so heavily infiltrated, right? If not actually started by the government. Yes, and and I it was in fact started by the government. Warren Hart actually uh, started it initially. Um, and uh, he was um, an agent provocateur, um, probably working for the FBI, but we always identified him as being part of the National Security Agency. But uh, doing uh, uh, hearings up in Canada, he seemed to have associated himself with the FBI. And the FBI loaned him to the Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, and all that's documented. And uh, other people obviously joined after he established the chapter. Uh, he went to California, got trained and so on. Uh, but yes, it was uh, it was set up by uh, the government. And, and, and Susie, look, and I just want to make this clear. Eddie's talking about, for people who may not understand, Eddie's talking about the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party specifically. Um, So when he's talking about Warren Hart, that's in relationship. He's the person who's generally credited with establishing the chapter. Um, I just want to make sure that we get that in so that people are clear on that. Okay, yeah. Someone has just suggested that, um, Eddie, you tell this this uh, great story about this guy who uh, evidently robbed something, ran through the Panther office, ran out the back door, and then the cops surrounded the office, you know, saying, give us this guy. Well, you didn't have the guy, but they surrounded the office and you were all arrested. And uh, you want to go on with that? Yeah, I, I, I was not arrested. I was not there at the time. And it wasn't a robbery. There was a incident uh, involving people in the community uh, and the police. And uh, one of the people that was working with the Panther Party uh, uh, assaulted or it, it appeared that he might have assaulted a police. He ran down the street ran in the office, ran out the back door. Uh, The office barricaded itself. They called me at the time. I think I was uh, the the lieutenant of security. They called me in. I came. uh, And so I was outside the office doing all this. I couldn't have got in the office anyway. And I actually negotiated a settlement because it looked like there was going to be a potential attack of the office by the police. Uh, The Panthers inside did get locked up and during their trial, uh, the Sun paper discovered or the Sun paper had discovered before the trial that this person was an agent provocateur and he had been working for the police in a number of different cases. And so basically the case was thrown out. Now, I don't know if I, I remember that correctly. Paul, do you remember anything about that? No, that would have been before me, Eddie. Yes. That, was, that was absolutely before me. Yeah. Okay, well, let's fast forward then some like 40-something years. 
Um, you've been framed on a murder charge, Eddie. You've spent 44 years in prison. And then I guess about three years ago, you and Paul are sitting around talking about things. And, and Paul is talking about hanging out with his grandkids. And um, what, what a really great thing it is to like, you know, try new discipline methods and, and just get to know his grandkids. He, and Paul said, I get great joy out of that. You, Eddie, having spent 44 years in prison, barely getting to see your own sons, you say to Paul on page, I think, 189, um, that's what I miss. I miss that whole piece of my life. So that whole piece molding and shaping and learning and sharing and growing together is gone. Losing that is part of the damage of long-term incarceration. It is a piece of genocide that's all over the black community. Check out that definition of genocide in the United Nations Charter. So you, I would like you to go on with that because I think that is a profound, if off-the-cuff statement. Um, the, the, the idea of genocide is very just upsetting and it happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Could you talk about what you feel? Why did the United Nations have to call out genocide and how does it operate in black communities, especially in terms of the carceral state in this country? Well, uh, there's, there's a number of things. And so I wanna look at this from both sides First, I want to look at it as a human being being locked in a cage mm -hmm. and uh, being isolated and separated from family, friends, siblings, and so on, uh, and, and needing for the matter of uh, survival to be self-contained. That's one thing that, that breaks those bonds because you have to kind of like have those abilities to take care of yourself no matter what happens, no matter who walks in your life. People walk in your life. Uh, they interact with you for a year or two. They get tired. They move on. They go about their business. They might disappear for five years or 10 years and then come back. And for them, it's another day that you've suffered for five or 10 years. That's one thing that, that hardens the human spirit and the human individual uh, just for the matter of self-protection. But on the other side of that, you know, part of the whole concept of genocide is stopping a, a people from procreating, stopping a people from developing humanity, stopping people from developing in a normal course. And what happens is that a, a, a tremendous amount of young people, men and women of childbearing age are separated from the community. And in this case right now, you're talking 2.3 million. Uh, and over the past uh, a few years, if you do the math, you are talking 12 million people. It's tremendous amount. And these are people that are that are scooped up by the time they're 16, 17, 18, and they're released when they're 40 or 45 or 50. And so you have all of that space in there 
where they could have developed a community, they could have developed children, grandchildren, uh, the community could have been strong, could have been richer, and so on. But all of that energy and all of those lives are snatched because of some kind of institutional racism uh, that that operates to target and focus people of color in America. And that's that's the piece of genocide that people don't realize that you're killing a whole race of people by putting them in cages, by putting young people in cages. But not only that, once they're in cages, they have to become crystallized. They have to become hardened. They have to become separate. They have to be no longer part of the community just to survive. And when they return to the community, they don't have that spirit, that interaction. They don't have that tie. And that's further destruction to the community. Mm-hmm. Well, you yourself uh, were separated from both your sons, and you had to get to know grandkids you'd probably never met for the most part, right? Well, that's true. And I'm still I'm still struggling to do that. I think one of the things that I appreciate about Paul uh, when I first got out um, is that I was saying I had lost contact with my second son and uh, I tried to find him. I couldn't find him. And uh, and I try. And uh, that was why I was in prison when I got out. I was sharing that with Paul on this porch. And uh, Paul said, look, if you want to have a relationship with him, you need to just go out there and find him and develop that. And I actually did. And that was and, and, and that was part of the key. So now we have a good relationship, have a good relationship with his children, uh, my grandchildren and so on. But the thing of it is, is most people don't get to recover like that. Most people don't get to come back. They lose what they lose and it's gone. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Paul, are you ready for a question for your Yeah, I want to go back though, oh. Susie. I want to go back. Let's let's add some synergy and backward mode right. okay? Because you know, I th- I think it's real important um like when we were talking about Warren Hart I think it's real important to understand how critical heart and how critical all those informers, how critical the infiltration of the Baltimore chapter and all the chapters really of the Black Panther Party was. But in Baltimore in particular, I remember a a place in Eddie's trial where they had called witnesses and the witnesses they called were... um, ex-Panthers. Mm-hmm. And it was real, real interesting how, and, and actually what I did was I conflated two different trials. I conflated the trial of Charlie Waichi with Eddie's trial. And that's the one I want to go back to. <clears throat> this was, um, Eddie was on charges with Charlie Waichi too, because they had, the charges went to jail when they had these other charges. In the case of Charlie Waishi, what they were contending was that Eddie and other Panthers uh, were responsible for the death of a police informer. Well, it, it so happened that the witnesses in that case 
And they had about they had about five witnesses ready to go and testify. One or two of them did. Those witnesses, as it turned out, were in the ploy of five different agencies, five different government agencies, and all of them had been brought in to the chapter by Warren Hart. There were people who worked under Warren Hart. It just so happened that Baltimore had the gift of a, of a, of a brilliant lawyer, Larry Gibson, who worked those cases and destroyed the Weishi case. When he destroyed the case, they dropped those charges against Eddie and other people, or else that would have been on top of Eddie as well. Mm -hmm. the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that Baltimore is a classic example of what people talked about in terms of infiltration, but what could be definitely pointed out to and easily seen through that particular court case. In Eddie's case, it was a similar thing in which they had brought in a, they had no witnesses, they brought in a, a guy, a, a paid police informer and stuck him in Eddie's cell. And that's who testified against Eddie Conway. So the role of informers and particularly their role in, in, in uh, causing people to be incarcerated, and so many Panthers are still incarcerated, hung up on testimony of people like this. That role played such a, a critical part in Eddie's case. And I used to get up every, and, 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 and it was a motive to me because one of the things I used to always think was there, but for the grace of God, go I. Eddie was more, Eddie was, was more senior to me. You see, but if I had been in the Panther Party, let's say at the same time that he was in the party, I probably would be un, would have been under those charges also. It wouldn't have been a thing of me being out of jail and being able to assist him. We would have been in jail doing time together. I don't know who would have assisted us at that point. But all of this is connected. All of this is connected to the role of the informers. And I just wanted to go back and make sure we tied that in. Okay. 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 Yeah. I'm tempted to read something that, that's quoted um, in the book. It, it's a quote from ta book that you respond to about uh, who made up the Panthers. I actually hadn't planned to do this, but it seems to like... Oh, do it, do it, do it. This is what ta Coates writes in The Beautiful Struggle, describing who was in the Panthers. It took all kinds, bourgeois college students, teenage mothers, plumbers, and professors, but the beloved and honored foot soldiers hailed from the back end of the world. They were the risen armies of the dead, cutthroats, rapists, brigands, and murderers, who in other lives feasted on their own people's toil. And then I, I ask you about that, that quote, Paul, it's a little harsh. And you actually say that um, that's where the informers came from. It's like the, the, the people who were so damaged that that's the way, the way they learned to survive. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's, I, I think that's true. And I think ta captures it so well because um, that period of time is no different from this period of time. If you look at who uh, who shows up and who's the one that's holding the sign, who's the one that's out there asking for change, you'll find us all across the board. And some of the bravest are those who weeks ago or months ago 
or a year ago were feasting on our community. And many of them have risen to a serious level of consciousness because of what's going on in society around us that one, those behaviors for many have changed and for some of them, they won't change. You know, some of them, they won't, they'll manifest in some other way, unfortunately, um, that foretells of destruction. But it is that combination. It is that those people, so many of them with nothing to lose, and other people like the college students who we were always amazed by <laughs> joining us with so much to gain, that combination, that amalgam right, of people right. were the people who made up the Black Panther Party and the supporters of the Black Panther Party. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, and I, and, and, yeah. and I would add uh, the, the people most affected by oppression are the people down on the ground with no jobs, no means of taking care of themselves. They've uh, experienced being put out of their houses. They have seen their family members go to jail with no justice. They have walked through. And one of the things that happened to me before I went uh, into the service is I could almost count every week, every weekend, seeing the police in our community beating up somebody, mm -hmm. a man, a woman, or a child, you know. And even though I didn't understand that as to uh, why that was going on, um, and that was the, the tip of the spear of the oppression, I it stayed in the back of my head that, well, okay, these things, something's wrong here. It is those people that get beaten it's those people that get put out. It's those people that wake up hungry. It's those children that are convinced that they need to drop out of school or suspend it. Those are the people that eventually develops a level of consciousness because they have to ask themselves. Initially, we blame the victim. It's our fault. We're not doing something. It's not right. You know, and then later on, we begin to understand that this is systemic. This mm -hmm. is part of society. If it wasn't for us down here on the bottom, the people that's up on the top wouldn't be rich because you can't be rich if you're not exploiting somebody. And that somebody that was being exploited was black and brown bodies. And it is those black and brown bodies that's being exploited that at first try to figure out a way to survive on each other. And then later on, look up and say, well, that's the problem up there. Mm -hmm. And they engage and they become involved. And they and it's it's and it's and it's true all over the world in in all societies all over the world, whether it's in South America or Africa or wherever you'll find the people down on the bottom at some point decides to say enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well done. Yeah, I, I this I sort of bleeds into another question that I had way back in the periphery, but let me ask it now. Both of you, well, one of the first things that blew me away when I was talking to both of you way back in 2014 was that Neither one of you was shy at all about talking about what was wrong with the Panthers and the mistakes people made. And yet both of you 
you know, through everything, through all kinds of discouragement and disappointment and betrayal, you, you've always held fast to the highest goals of the Panthers and, and humanity, basically, is, is equality and liberation. How were you able to do all that through 44 years in prison, you know? Well, in my case, it, it's not so much what was wrong. The ideas, the, the philosophy, the ideology was forward-looking and correct. There's always whatever you do, there's always the human element, people involved that has to execute those ideas, programs, etc. But in the case of the pamphlets in particular, it was those almost 300 COINTELPRO operations directed at the Panthers to undermine the work that the Panther Party was designed to do. If that, if you take that away, if you take that Cointel Pro operation away, if you take the use of those agent provocateurs and informers away, if you take that constant need to create warfare among different elements and groups in the Panther Party, if you take all that away, you may would have a better society now that would be looking forward instead of going back to the we have, we have actually had suffered setback in terms of the American society. Um, but it can be contributed to the fact that not only did they incarcerate people that were actively trying to change the world, but they incarcerated anybody. This is where mass incarceration, this whole prison industrial complex comes from the fact that they reacted to people talking about black power, talking about I'm black and I'm beautiful, talking about even black capitalism, talking about bringing about some some uh, self-sufficiency. Those people were targeted for the most part and swept up and put in the prison system and this now you have this millions of people in the prison system. The people that weren't targeted were either marginalized or brought off or, or sidelined. Uh, but this same kind of thing happened after Reconstruction. If you go back into history, uh, at the end of Reconstruction, you have this massive, massive explosion of prisons across the nation. They didn't have prisons. They had poor houses. All of a sudden now there's massive prisons everywhere. And you get locked up for not having money in your pocket. You get locked up for not being employed. You get locked up from just traveling to a better place. The same thing happened after the Black Liberation Movement and the Liberation Movements in general. The same thing happened with that same reaction. So this is not a new story in America, but it's a story of how America has always been controlling people of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, another question that I had saved up for, for a way back there. Um, 
based on that and and, and uh, the kind of interference, both now more corporate as well as government, you know, in, in terms of screwing up movements for actual social change. Um, do you see any difference now on the ground in movements like Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives in terms of how they structure themselves and operate as movements compared to the Panthers? Are they a little more aware that this is going on? Susie, I'm going to let, um, I'll, I'll say one thing on it. Um, and Eddie probably has extended, uh, more extended thoughts on it. Um, one is a, um, a difference, of course, and then a concern. And I speak to this in, in, in the book when, we, when you interviewed me before I speak to this, and it's even more uh, profound now, given the expansion of, of the movement. The first um, um, observation is, of, of course, the, the, the Panther Party was in fact the Panther Party. It wasn't a movement. It was part of the Black Liberation Movement, but in itself it was distinguished as the Black Panther Party in that sense. It had a structure, a command structure, that um, was more uh, paramilitary and militaristic minding in, minded in terms of uh, the order and the chains of command, how we responded to each other, and how we were organized. And of course, I, I see Black Lives Matter quite different than that in the sense that it's very, very decentralized. Those are observations. Uh, and the, the, the Panther, and I'll, I'll say this at the risk of taking on whoever wants to talk about it, but the Panthers had this very masculine, uh, this male thing of do it this way or else, you know? Even women had that, you know? And I see Black Lives Matter as having much more of a, a, a feminine type of energy to it that has a care to it, that has a consideration of, of, of bringing people together and in so many different ways, difference. The concern is, and what I, as I expressed in the book, my concern has to do with just, just like we're talking about Eddie here. Eddie was able to survive. And he was able to be in that jail and come out of that jail because we never lost track of Eddie. There was a network around the world who was aware of Eddie Conway. He went in as a Panther. He was treated as a Panther when he was in jail. And he was always recognized during all those years as a Panther. And my concern is with people who are being arrested today, yes. under whatever charges they're being arrested today, they don't have that same type of structure, that structure, that that network. They don't have it, as you know, um, even people later in, in another iteration of the Black Panther and uh, uh, in, in Black Power Movement, with the Black Liberation Movement, with the Black Liberation Army, many of those people were lost in the jail and did not have the same types of support system. We got Panthers in jail now who we took a moment of silence to and people from that period, the majority of people don't know about them. What is gonna to happen to the people from the Black Liberation Movement? I'm sorry, um, Black Lives Matter Movement. And how do we keep track of those people? How do we support those people become the large concern that I have as an expression? Yeah, 
Thank you. I actually, you had talked about this in the book, and I wanted to ask you if you thought that was still true. I mean, you, you mentioned Very much so. everybody knows who Leonard Peltier is. That's right. Who knows about the kid who was, you know, That's arrested right. and disappeared into the system five months ago? That's I mean, right. I was going to ask if you still think that's true. Absolutely. In some kind of way, I'm, I'm sorry, I, some kind of way, you know, it occurs to me in, in talking about this and listening, but some kind of way it becomes our responsibility. It becomes our responsibility. I'm saying the people outside, it becomes our responsibility to have a relationship and be on the lookout for these people in some kind of way that we can maintain it. Because I don't know how, I, even I can sit here and talk about it's a problem and a concern and then not be concerned enough to at least keep my eyes open for this stuff, you see? So I'm I'm thinking that it's, it's my responsibility. I'm responsible for my brother. I'm sorry, Ed. Yeah. Okay, no, no. And I actually, I agree with you. That is one of the weakness of this new movement. Um, I agree that, you know, I mean, different times uh, bring different ways in which people organize, different formations. Uh, I, I I think the decentralization of the, the Black Lives Matter movement is a really important piece, but I know that they also have to be aware that they're going to be infiltrated just like any other organization. You can go all the way back to... Uh, Jesus Christ and Judas, okay? Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be infiltration. But I agree with Paul, the not keeping up with people and not keeping up with the people that's, that, that's vulnerable that end up in the prison system is a problem, and, it, and it's a problem that probably needs to be discussed more and talked about because right here in Baltimore, say, for instance, uh, and I clearly remember it, um, uh, during the Freddie Gray uprising, uh, uh, one guy threw a trash can through the uh, window of a police car. Uh, he, he went off in the system. Uh, and I don't know where he is or who's looking out for him or what's happening with him. But out of concern about the treatment of the black community, he reacted. And he did something that that anger forced him to do, and now he's disappeared. Uh, those things, those, and and you're absolutely right, Paul. It is to a great degree our responsibility, if not to physically do anything, to communicate with people that should be concerned because this is their comrades, right? And um. Uh, that's certainly a weakness. Uh, but on the other side of it, I think historically, women has always been the backbone and the energy and the glue that has held movements together throughout our history, from slavery on up until now. Uh, and unfortunately, Men has been the talking heads uh, and uh, the camera shots. Um, <laughs> but now I think we have a, an, 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 a different kind of energy. We have energy from women and it's a more thinking 
there's a little more thinking involved in this and there's a little less reacting. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the long run, this movement will grow and develop and address those things um, as long as we keep sharing. Um, and uh, that's one of the things about this movement is it wants, it does share, it wants to share, it does try to learn. But more important than that, it's concerned about harm reduction. It's concerned about health care. It's concerned about the rights of people, whether it's gender rights or whatever. Uh, and I think that's an important piece because that's not what, what the Panthers were doing. What the Panthers were doing was like, get out the way, open the door, let us get our peace, or you're going to have some trouble out of us. Mm-hmm. This movement has a different way in which it's approaching that. And uh, as I, I talk to young people all the time, and I always advise them, don't let anybody lead you anywhere that you're not trying to go. Don't let anybody make suggestions for you to do things that you didn't decide right. to do already. That's, right. that's an important piece. And that's not necessarily a piece that we understood then. Mm-hmm. But now that we know how insidious the government is, we understand that now. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, unfortunately, they still are going to have to fight back. Because even when you just say all we want to do is be treated as humans, you're going to be attacked for that. Because there's so many people with with, with sick ideologies that don't see you as humans. Mm-hmm. And if you stand up as a human being, you're going to be attacked. Right. And so there's going to be some pushback. How are we doing for questions, Susie? Well, you know, I was wondering if I sh- I wanted to swing it over to uh, Black literature for a minute, and then we can have a go, and then see if we want to open it up to, to the audience. Does that sound okay? Because I had a question all saved up for you, Paul. Um, and it's one of those things we kind of mentioned offhand uh, a couple of years ago, and um it really stuck. It stuck with me big time. Um, you've devoted your life to black literature. It, you know, obviously, black classic press and, and the black bookstore, you started the, the black book in, in Baltimore, started out as, as, as a way to help Eddie, but also it, it increased your enthusiasm and knowledge for this tremendous uh intellectual life and this conversation that had been going on since the 1600s, if not before, about Black life and consciousness. So um, in the book, uh, you were talking about having been interviewed by this guy from C-SPAN. And you're you're talking about how your passion is for Black self-trained historians. Um, And you tell this guy from C-SPAN that one of the baddest historians of them all was a black woman, Drusilla Dungy Houston, who in 1926 wrote The Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient ancient Kushite Empire. And the interviewer says to you, well, Houston's history doesn't really hold up now, right? And you say, all history gets criticized. Why impose such a burden 
on somebody who is making such an effort to tell history. It's not as important that her books stand up as it is her efforts. What it cost her to write that book in the first place. What does it mean that you're a black woman in the middle of Oklahoma, the Negro territories in the early 20s? What causes you to write about the heroic deeds of black people who lived thousands of years ago in Africa? So I want you to elaborate on that because I think that is just uh, a, a profound thought. So, so Susie, I'll, I'll take it for a few minutes. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll contain it because I really want to um, allow some time for some other folks to question. Sure. Um, but just to contain it, you, you know, I was listening, you, you, you were saying, and someone might characterize me devoting my life to uh, Black literature and what have you. And the truth is, I haven't. You know, the truth is, I haven't. I've devoted my life to uh, people like Drusilla Dungy Houston, who struggle against the misrepresentations, the um, <laughs> Um, the misinterpretations and the corrupt, the corruption of history of her time. And I've devoted my life, really, I love to read Black books. And, and yes, in the military, I focus, I just, when I became aware of Black books, I said, that's what I'm going to focus on. But really, I learned that people sacrifice to do those books, to make those books. People actually, like her in the middle of Oklahoma, went through hell to to do these. And that's why it was one of the first books, full books that we published. People went through hell. My ancestors, and it brings tears to my eyes now, and I get up every morning because I think about this stuff, that, that my ancestors actually believed that writing a corrected history, and they made all kinds of attempts, could go against those histories that white folks wrote, those histories that chained us, those histories that enslaved us and made us less than. My ancestors fought back. They fought back on the streets and they fought in the ways that Eddie and I did. But much, much longer than that is this long intellectual history, this long history of resistance. Mrs. Houston represents that train of people, and it's that train of people who I am committed to uncovering and are are publishing, which again goes back to Eddie and getting people books in jail and stuff like that. But our our history and and our publishing really is devoted to that and will be, as far as I can see, for the rest of my life, as long as I'm publishing. That history needs to be told. Someone needs to tell it. Uh, Hakeem Ahadabudi once said something like this. He said, well, you can't expect that Italians would tell, well, you can't expect Black people to tell Italian history. You can't expect Italians to tell Black history. That's the responsibility for people of African descent. That's my responsibility. Just like we're talking about the the folks who go to jail, they're part of my community. It's my my responsibility, and I'm going to stop there, okay? Because I could go on and on and on and on. Do you see anybody now who who exhibits that kind of courage? Especially, Do you you see any writers now that exhibit that kind of Of course, of course, of course. Of course, there's always there's a dominant there's a dominant um, narrative, 
and, and I'll, I'll give you a good example. There's a dominant narrative, for example, Manny Marable, who, who, is, who happened to be black mm-hmm. and who died, but whose book was actually written in large part with his editors. And it was held up as the Pulitzer Prize winning book. But the narrative there was a white narrative. It was a white narrative. It was celebrated all over the world and it still is celebrated. In response to that, two different publishing companies brought together people. And these are the people much more sophisticated than Mrs. Houston was. Mrs. Houston had a had a grade school education. Most of the people who came together to oppose Manny Marable's books were college-educated Blacks who understood still the need to correct history, even if it was written and approved by a Black person. That's, that's how it goes now. It's, it's still there, and people are still writing alternative histories, yes. You're talking about uh, his biography of uh, Malcolm X? His biography of Malcolm X, and, and I'm talking about the book that we published in one of the books was a book we published in response to it. His was um, um, on Malcolm X, whatever, um, um, uh, gosh, it's escaped me now. But ours was correcting Manny Marable. I know what ours was, okay? (laughs) Because he's dealing with Malcolm X and he's writing these things. Well, we have a response to it. I don't care if Random House and Penguin are the biggest people on the planet. I'm going to respond to it. Just like Mrs. Houston's responded. She didn't care about all of the history that was uh, that was written against Black people. She said, I've been able to do research. And that all of the, the historians, the geologists, and all these other people, no matter what you say, I'm going to put this out here. And that's what she did. And that's what we did with Manny Marable. So it's still, there's still the need for that. And there's still people, it's just, they're much more sophisticated now, much more educated and much more um, literate. And, and that's, that's it. Eddie, do you want to add anything? Mm, no, I think that was elaborately put. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to open it up now to the larger audience? Please. Okay get away from me. Um, Let's see, a few questions are coming in. I will just take a second because I'm a slow reader. Okay. Um, Brother Shabazz asks, uh, is revolution still a goal and what does it look like? Also, any thoughts on voting or not voting as a survival strategy? And I won't even name the candidates. Both of those are for Eddie. Uh, Oh, you think? Oh, you'll have to. Um, well, well, I, I will. I will tackle to them. Um, I, I think, you know, um, if you look at the 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 plight of the planet now, we're in what's known as the sixth mass extinction period, which means something like between two and six hundred species uh, disappearing from the planet every day. If we look at the climate condition in 10 or 20 years, young people won't be able to breathe. If we look at the plight of the population on the planet, people are living, billions, billions of people are living on two dollars a day. 
if we look at the way in which people live, whether it's in Africa, South America, or Asia, uh, with uh, draconian laws, uh, military governments, etc. So, I mean, the answer to that question is, uh, if you look at gender rights, uh, uh, people are being attacked and abused because of their expression of how they feel as human beings. If we look at the prison systems all across the globe, we see that people of color, black, brown, um, uh, those people that's not accepted by uh, white supremacy uh, are being in prison in mass everywhere. So I don't know the answer uh, whether revolution is necessary, but we certainly understand that if real substantial changes aren't made, the human race is now in jeopardy. If real changes aren't made to take control of the resources of this planet, people are going to disappear just like the rest of these species are disappearing. The planet will be here, mm. but we won't. Right. And so you have to answer that question, is revolution needed for yourself? That's a consciousness that you have to develop. But the fact of the matter is, all of these things are happening now. Mm. In relationship to voting, uh, my position is that I think for gaining control of your local areas, your local municipalities, the governments and the institutions that run your life, I think that's an important piece for everybody. And I think you should be engaged in that. I personally don't engage in national politics in terms of presidential elections because I look back for the last 200 years and I have never seen an election that benefited people of color, oppressed people, women, etc. It's always the people that has the money and and at the end of every four year or eight year terms, the people that has the money has more money and the people the rest of the population. So I don't, I, I, I don't endorse that kind of rat race or horse race or whatever kind of race it is. But I do think you need to be engaged on a local level. Okay. Um, let me take a question from Eve Goldberg. Hi, Eve. Um, please describe how your relationship developed, Paul, with Eddie while he was in prison, or I'm sure that works both ways. How did your relationship evolve with Paul visiting you in prison? Eddie? Sure. Uh, one of the things that happened when Eddie went to jail, a lot of other Panthers, they basically wiped out the leadership of the Panther Party by arresting everyone uh, that they could. Um, Eddie was arrested, a number of other Panthers were arrested, and then there was another arrest. And what happens in arrest situations like that, you have the people in jail, but you also have 
a number of people who leave the, who, they never really were members of the organization, community workers like me, but it was enough for them to look at Eddie in jail and say, oh no, I'm not going to jail. And they, these, so many people left the, the party. Um, I stayed and I went up to New York and I was, um, I was given a report and I gave that report on uh, um, saying that Eddie was in jail, other leadership folks were in jail, nobody, there were no Panthers left in Baltimore. There were people in Baltimore who were still loyal to the party, but they weren't Panthers, including me. And so um, the guy who was in charge basically uh, at that time I was talking to, Robert Bay, um, looks at me and he says, uh, well, I guess that means that it's you. And I said, no, I don't understand. He said, you're in charge. And I said, no, I can't be in charge because I'm not a Panther. He said, you're a motherfucking Panther now. Get back down to Baltimore and get those people organized, mm -hmm. which I did. In coming back to Baltimore, I'm sure I told Eddie um, what had happened, but it put me in charge of, of the people outside in the Panther Party, and it put me in charge of the people who were inside. Eddie, uh, and there were two other brothers at the time um, uh, that were still incarcerated, but there were about 15 people, maybe 20 people, under charges, including myself. So, so it was my responsibility to do legal defense. And then I worked closely over the years. And that guy who I told you about, who was so standoffish and he was this Panther who was all of that and stuff. I, I really came to love him. Um, I came to love him because I, I could trust whatever came out of his mouth, he was going to be committed to. And that he was always going to be committed. Susie, you asked about him. How, how do you keep this idea of the Panthers in jail? Even when the Panthers are gone, I could love this guy because he was still committed to the, to the values of the Panther Party, those values that the Panther Party held. And I always saw that. And so uh, even we, we, we became close we became very close because of that and through our working together um, in the party and then once he was incarcerated. Eddie? Well, it's, it's, it's the same for me, but only reverse. Um, from inside, um, the thing that I understood is that, yes, I was suffering uh, I had been caught up in the government conspiracy web. Um, there was sacrifices that was being made. But I looked outside and I could see all the time Paul making all kinds of sacrifices. In fact, I used to kind of like tell him, we're okay, don't do that. Don't sacrifice this. He would sacrifice his money, he would sacrifice his business, he was sacrificing uh uh, his relationships plan, um, but he was there. Mm -hmm. He continued to be there and he continued to work for us. And even in the midst, and and I, I have to share that, even in the midst where he would share with me sometime, oh God, this is rough. I don't know how this is going to work. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I'm going to make it. And I would say, just stop, slow down, do something else. And he would say, no. No, mm -hmm. I'll figure it out. I'll work through it. 
Mm-hmm. And to me, that developed a bond that's that's unbreakable because I watch I, I watched him. He took he was in jail with me. Mm-hmm. That's really the bottom line. He was in jail with me without being locked up. Mm-hmm. Wow! Yeah, I get that. I I think that happens a lot. You know, it's 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 a separate reality for people who love people inside prison, and that's a whole nother book. I have a question from Laura Whitehorn, who was a definite part of having made this book, just like Dominique Stevenson Conway has been. Anyway, Laura wants to know, Eddie, can you talk about the impact of the books that Paul sent inside prison to the people you were with and you were mentoring inside? Well, yeah. Um, uh, initially, when I actually got inside the prison, <laughs> the one thing that I realized was there was uh, thousands of people in the Maryland penitentiary. I think it was around 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. There was no library. And that was deliberate. Mm-hmm. It was deliberate because you don't, the way you can control a population is by keeping them illiterate or keeping them uh, away from information and knowledge. And so originally, the first thing we decided to do was we create a people's library. And in order to create that people's library, we needed somebody outside to help us. And Paul stepped into that with the George X move. And that people's library educated the population to the point where it made demands for changes where it organized, where it pushed reform, um, and it changed the conditions. We went from the conditions that I that that prisoners were being treated as animals to prisoners demanding revolutionary change. Mm-hmm. And now, even 50 years later, actually 50 years later, which is amazing. Some of those prisoners, those very prisoners, are out in the street now working in the community in the safe street programs, in other kind of programs, in legal programs, uh, around issues of, of prisoners that still left there. Those are the same people that read those books. Mm. Those are the same people and that consciousness developed over those years. And now they're doing all sorts of things. And mm. Even 50 years later, I see the results of that movement, the George Jackson prison movement that Paul organized and initiated to get books to us. I have a question that uh, Nikichi Taifa has been asking for a while. Nikichi is amazing. She's just published her own book about being a black lawyer. Um, she wants to know, can we reopen the COINTELPRO church committee hearings and provide redress for the victims. Does anybody know if that's possible? I mean, I certainly don't. Nikichi is the warrior lawyer. <laughs> she would know more than yeah. me. Uh-huh. Um, but it would seem like it would have to be something different. But I, I don't go that deep, so I don't know. I really don't know what the prospect of that is. There's a lot to. Um, 
there's a lot that was done in the 70s. And that's what Nikichi is referring to. There was a lot that was done in the 70s. There's a lot that's going on now. Nikichi, what I guess I would um, question is to the extent that, again, being in concern with those folks who are being incarcerated now, to the extent that we can, I wonder what can be done to track them and to help them with the stuff. Because like Eddie's saying, people are going to be set up now, just like they were then. Um, many of our people are gone, as you know, in Kichi. But those folks, that generation right now, still need our help. And I don't know who's working on it. I just don't know. You know, and, and I guess uh, uh, my feeling is that the government has never offered redress to the people that it has legally injured or illegally injured. And this goes back whether you want to go back to uh, uh, World War One or wherever. I mean, the government will have hearings, there'll be papers on it, there'll be discussions and committees about it, there'll be books written about it, and then it will go away. And I have, I, I mean, we're right now waiting, I don't know if we are or not, for our 40 acres and two mules. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and we'll be waiting for some time. Uh, I think we need to put that energy uh, maybe like Paul is saying, put that energy toward providing some kind of apparatus that will support young people or support the people that get caught up at this time, in this moment. Um, mm -hmm. Because the, the, the government doesn't correct itself. It just codifies whatever it did wrong and move forward. Yeah. It makes it legal. Now we have the Patriot Act. So all those things that were done to the Pampers and COINTELPRO are actually legal now, you know. And, and, and one of the worst things, and I just want to add this because I want to get this in there, mm -hmm. it's a bill, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012 and 2016 now authorizes the government to lock up anybody anywhere make them disappear, they lose their their uh, corp, uh, habeas corpus rights, they have no right to an attorney, and so on. The family has no right to be informed. Mm -hmm. This is a bill that was signed by President Obama in 2012. It's signed again by Obama in 2016. It is the law of the land now. And, it, and anybody, the three of us or anybody can disappear because of that particular law right now. So you have no rights anymore. Uh, and that was done on a Democratic president, a black Democratic president at that. So um, I would spend some time trying to figure out how we could help those people that's being caught up in the system right now. I have a question from uh, Myra Rodriguez. Uh, hey, how have you managed to keep love in your heart when the government committed such a horrible injustice against you? I don't love the government. Uh, if if no, you're asking me that, yeah. 
So I never, I and you know, I I never. Ex- oh come on. <laughs> let's, let's be real. I mean, we go back to slavery. You know, I mean, we go back as a people before slavery. But the crimes that's been committed in the last 500 years, there's nobody, no thinking human being can love that. It's mass murder, genocide, robbery, rape, and destruction of people and the planet. So, no, I, I never kept love in my heart. I just, I, I don't hate because that would be self-destructive for me. But I don't love those things. I think those things should be changed. That's that. That's uh, two votes for that position. Okay, it's, a, it's not about it's not about love. Um, in fact, when I think about the things that Eddie just got done talking about, I think about the black folks who brought here, the black folks that built this country. I think about the Native Americans. I think about um, our uh, brothers and sisters, our brown brothers and sisters below this so-called border. When I think about them, when I think about all of it, I always weigh it out and I always say, somebody got to pay for this. You know, so I'm not talking I'm not talking about I'm not talking about in money as much as I'm talking about the scales have to be reversed. There has to be a reckoning. And I want to be a part of that reckoning. And that ain't got nothing to do with love. It doesn't have anything to do with hate either, because I don't carry the hate like Eddie's saying. Um, It's a matter of consciousness. It's a matter of understanding that the scales are out of balance. And that's the space that I stand in. Mm-hmm. Okay, it being 6.18 Eastern Time, I'm wondering if we shouldn't um, start to wrap up. Um, I have a closing question. If, if there's well, nobody well, uh, Susie, Susie, yes. I think it would be unfair for you to ask us all these questions and we not ask you a question. I got a question. I think you. it's totally fair. Hey. How do you, how did you deal with this? You you you, you, yeah. you had this idea interviewing these two black men. Uh, You're a white girl. Yes, I am. How did you navigate that space to um one of the things I really like about your introduction? I, I like about your introduction, you point out that it's 95% Eddie and I, and I agree with that. But how was that for you? Uh, what were the changes that you went through? You, you, you're you dealing with people, black folks who are outspoken. So you, you, you're only going to get so far with this. You have to come right. How did you do this? And, and how did you fix yourself up to do it? I don't know. I just, I mean, I, I didn't set out to write a book about the Panthers or history or anything that I already knew the message of, really. I, I loved you and Eddie. You're both phenomenal, magnificent people. Um, you know, I get a little weepy just thinking about you. It's like um, you have such beautiful soul to get really corny about it. And um yeah, there, there are miles to navigate between us. I will probably never understand uh, totally or internalize totally your emotional or, or physical realities. But I love you. And I just wanted to be open, you know, to you. And I wanted to, like, 
set down what I heard. Probably a person of color would have done a different job, possibly a better job. But this is just what I did, you know. And um, I, yeah, I am both conscious and unconscious of being white, I guess, like most white people. You know, so it, does that work for you? Yeah, I, I think I think, Susie, you, you know, I just heard what you said. Maybe a person of color would have done it differently. And I agree with that. Perhaps, perhaps. But I think uh, the one thing I would ask you to carry forward with yourself is that there is some value sometimes in being an outsider and yeah. listening in and recording the conversation. The, 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 the value I think that you brought to this uh, task was not adding your own stuff to it. Like those are my like like not trying to tell me what to say or telling Eddie what to say, and I think that that has its own value to it, you know. So I just want to acknowledge you for that and thank you uh, for bringing this for for bringing that gift and those skills to it. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, I, I've often wondered what to do with my stuff, but this is definitely not the place for it. So uh, okay then. Um, I wanted to close with um, some announcements. And if you guys have any announcements you want to make, or if anybody in the audience, I wanted to say that one of the real joys of going to a Paul Coates Black Classic Press launch online is um, there's so few divisions between audience and writers. You know, it's not like I'm up here, you're down there. People are, they each have their own little squares. People can like have conversations. It's its a community feel. And so it, yeah. if anybody is interested in out there in community land, um, if you want to talk about what you're writing, you know, in terms of prison or racial justice or anything, you know, books, articles, maybe what films you're working on, throw it into the chat, uh, if there is one. I know this is a Skype. Um, and, and throw it in so maybe other people can see what, what's going on with you. So, because we really all need to keep up with each other, you know. Um, I also want to repeat that uh, uh, donations from this event will go to Haymarket to help get whether you choose and um, uh, at Black Power Afterlives into prisons to people. Um, so, a couple of announcements. Next Wednesday, the 21st, Mr. Eddie Conway will be in a conversation with Jose Saldana of RAP, Release Aging People in Prison. Uh, they'll be talking about mentoring behind bars. Jose was one of the young wards, and Eddie as we know, has been uh, a young panther. So uh, I'll be talking about aging into the prison and, and mentoring younger men inside. So that's uh, Wednesday. Just go to the RAP website, R-A-P-P campaign.com. Uh, it'll be uh, 4.30 to 6 next Wednesday. Um Let's see. Uh, Jaleel Montekin, uh got parole. Uh, the latest is that he is home. He's out of prison as of yesterday. So there you have it. That's a little good news. But even though Jaleel's out, I want to remind people, as I, everyone does, uh, that there are still 
2.3 million people in prison. Some of them are Panthers, are former Panthers, and it really doesn't matter because every person is a human being and they don't need to be in prison. So do what you can to reach out to somebody. Uh, uh, Paul Coates, did you want to talk about the next DCP launch in December? Um, not so much, Susie. Um, our, our website has probably been posted. I would ask people to hit the website, sign into our mailing list so that we can keep up with, um, so that we can keep up with you. Um, if you, for folks that, um, send me, a, um, uh, an email, if you send me an email or you, uh, go to the site. I want to pass along, and I'm not able to do it today, but Colin Kaepernick just released a monthly. I don't know if you saw that, Eddie, the monthly that he's done on abolishing prisons. So no. so for people that would like to receive the first issue of that, there's articles by uh, an article by Colin Kaepernick, Angela Davis, and a number of other people on abolishing prisons. It just came out, either came out yesterday or it's coming out, uh -huh. um, but he sent it along and asked that it be distributed. And I apologize that I don't have the connection with me now that we could have posted, but I promise you, if you send me an email, I'll send the information along to you. Um, BCP, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Black Classic Books at um, oh, right. com is the website. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. And I, I see we have a little positive feedback here. I have to drop a name from Herman Bell, who has been out of prison now for four, uh, two years, of another former Panther. So there we have it. Eddie, do you have anything to announce? You and Dominique, your wife, um, are involved with the Tubman House. Do you want to talk about that in Baltimore? Um, no, I don't have any announcements. We continue to work down in the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, this is a local issue. So if there's people in the local area that want to help uh, volunteer, uh, we're distributing food. Uh, as soon as this uh, COVID-19 clears up, we'll be planning more food. Uh, and we'll be working in the community with young people to try to bring them um uh, some other alternatives to the life that they're being forced to live now by oppression. Mm -hmm. It's a great website, uh, Harriet Tubman, Baltimore, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah, go visit that. All right. I suppose I have to say the obligatory with no further ado, we're about to close. The <laughs> well, and, and, and everybody, I do encourage you as you're as you as you've been encouraged before, pick up the book, buy the book. <laughs> there That's my <laughs> the only way to go. <laughs> and Susie, thank you again. Thank you for and thank Haymarket. Um, um, if we've got a minute, I'll I'll just say this one thing, Susie. We're Black Classic Press, and of course we publish books. But when Susie told me she was working on this, we knew that it would. It, this book really should go to a uh, a press that has a credible reach and a credible program for reaching people. 
And Haymarket was at the top of the very, at the very top of the list of publishers. Susie uh, pitched it to Haymarket. They immediately responded. We've done work with Haymarket. Uh, they're just an awesome, awesome press. Please support Haymarket Press. That would be my uh, request to everyone uh, because they stand, and, and more books on the Panther Party than anybody, um, they stand in a very, very sacred space of struggle. And we need to support that. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.